Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Uh, I'm making Alex do the intro today because she's so much better at it. Alex, who have we got on today? I don't even need to introduce this person because this person basically lives here with us. It's Kit, Dr. Kit Chapman. Yay! Who can take science, history and make it fun, which I never thought I'd say. You all right, Kit? I'm very well. How are you two doing? Yeah, we're all right. Running on fumes a bit today, but excited about this one because you decided that we were going to do a history of rubber. And we were like, OK, but because it's you, I've read the notes and it's fucked up. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, you, you think the history of rubber is going to be incredibly boring. We have multiple genocides. We have uh, slave internments. We have armies marching into the jungle and being wiped out. And we have Henry Ford being attacked over hamburgers. Uh, what could possibly go wrong i don't know what to say i've received the notes by the way and the title was just like rubber i was like what do i make of this no comment to what came straight to my head trust me stay tuned you're gonna have fun brilliant okay fine let's kick off with probably the most simplest question of all right where does rubber come from rubber comes from loads of places so there's about 1200 different species of plant that actually grows uh, contains rubber and it's sort of a sticky substance that's given off to prevent insects from chewing on the plant the insects don't like it so if you think of sort of chewing gum that's what you know rubber when it dries in its natural state looks like and we're talking about rubber latex and you'll find that in things like dandelions but the best source of it is in the amazon jungle um, and the the amazon the para rubber tree uh, and that's really where we start seeing rubber used for the first time um, by the sort of the, the Mesoamerican tribes. They were using it in footballs. But as I, as I said, it, it was kind of rubbish. It was kind of like chewing gum, because what you've got to think about with rubber is what's happening at a scientific level. It's made of something called polyisoprene. And these are massive, long chains of molecules, massive, long strings. And usually they're in a, a sort of a ball of twine or like a messy ball of spaghetti. But when you stretch them out, like a spaghetti being pulled out of that bowl of pasta it can stretch to about 10 times its length and when you let go of it it slips back into the bowl it slips back into that ball and so that's incredibly useful it means that rubber's got lots of really interesting properties that makes it fantastic for things like tires for things like condoms we also use it in the foundations of buildings uh, for earthquake zones to try and stabilize things so anything that needs to stretch and has a bit of give anything that needs to be waterproof rubber latex is fantastic Brilliant. 
that answered that in a nutshell. Uh, when did we start discovering that we could use it for stuff? When did we stop just walking past this plant and then go, oh? Well, this is the this is the thing. So as I mentioned, rubber is basically like chewing gum in its sort of natural state when you get it out of the tree. And and how you actually get it from a rubber plant is it's kind of gross. You basically hack the um, the plant to, to bits. You create this sort of groove and you stick a cup in it and let the latex leak. It's, it's almost like a white sort of glue. If you've seen PVA glue, it sort of leaks into the cup. And that's how they gather it. They do it overnight in the in the jungle because it's cooler. It means the rubber sort of condensed into the into the tree stalk. And the U.S. started trying to use this stuff in the early 1830s. The problem was it melts. Uh, it's very, very sort of thin area of temperature. And you can't really create anything with it because it doesn't stay in its shape. It's like chewing gum. So there was this company called the Roxbury India Rubber Company. And they basically tried to market it in the US and their whole stock, 20,000 US dollars worth, melted and had to be thrown into a pit. So complete failure. <laughs> and this guy, uh, Charles Goodyear, he was basically a bit of a loser, um, but he comes up with a plan to try and and make rubber stay in its shape. Are we talking about the same Goodyear as Goodyear? We are not. So Charles Goodyear, as I said, was a perennial loser. We'll go through a little bit of his, of his life history. Um, he loses everything. He loses rubber. Um, he loses a fortune. He even loses his name. The Goodyear Tire Company stole his name to market their tires. So they have nothing whatsoever to do with Charles Goodyear. Man, that's um, wash. Did he at least get a cut of the money? Well, <laughs> this is the problem. So Charles Goodyear, there's, there's one thing that happens throughout his life, and that is he ends up in debtor's prison over and over again. So um, he started off life basically trying to sell domestic goods with a, with a family. He was small time, but he started getting dyspepsia and he sort of gave that up and thought, I'm going to be an inventor. And he wanted to solve this problem with rubber. And so he started looking all kinds of different ways to stop it being gooey. Um, and as soon as he left debtor's prison, because he went bankrupt in his former business, he sets up his family in a New York tenant block. They're working out of a bedroom and he's trying different powders to try and dry out the rubber and make it less sticky. Um, he occasionally thinks he's almost got it. He gets a contract for the US government to, to give them 150 rubber mail bags, all of which melt. It doesn't work. He ends up destitute. He ends up bankrupt again. He's forced to move out to a place called Woburn, Massachusetts. He is so poor, the local farmers end up feeding his children milk and potatoes just to survive. Um, and he's doing this for about five years. His family are completely struggling. In the winter of 1839, he finally decides to try and look at uh, sulfur. And he sprinkles some sulfur on the rubber and everyone's laughing at him. Uh, he takes it down to the village store and he's trying to show, look, I finally solved it, guys. The crowd is laughing. He gets so angry, he pulls out his strip of rubber and starts waving it at them, and it slips out of his hand. It goes flying across, and it lands on the stove of the, of the store. And instead of melting, it hardens. And this, by complete accident, is how we discovered how to actually make rubber usable, because this is a process that he calls vulcanization. And basically, you've got those long polyisoprene strands that I've talked about. The sulfur, when it's heated, actually forms little bridges between those strands. And that means it can't stretch completely uh, and then sort of let go. It, it actually can stay in shape. And from that, we can actually start 
building bridges with things. We can actually start making tires. We can start making all the rubber products we see today. The thing is, Charles Goodyear has no idea how to handle money. For the first time in his life, he has actually started to do well. He starts, tries getting patents. Everyone copyright infringes him. Um, he runs off uh, to France, in fact, to try and show this at uh, a sort of a world expo. And uh, he is awarded by Napoleon III, um, the, uh, the, the Legion of Honor. Um, he actually gets that. The thing is, true to form, he actually gets awarded it in prison because he's there for unpaid hotel bills. By the end of his life, he is 200,000 US dollars in debt. That's a lot of such a diss. I say I'm the opposite. I'm like, that's such a sad story. Yeah, uh, so so he, he dies um, in, um, I'm just trying to think, I think it's about 1860. Um, and yeah, by the time of, by the end of his life, he's bankrupt. He even loses his name, as we mentioned. The Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company has absolutely nothing to do with him or his family. But we had a chuckle about him because he is a loser, as you pointed out. But as ever, when white man finds something that they can make money out of, all the other people in the world suffer, don't they? So <laughs> tell us about the Amazon yeah. rubber boom. So this is, so as I mentioned, the, the best source of rubber that we find um, with vulcanization is the power rubber tree. And that grows along the banks of the Amazon River and the Rio Negro in Brazil. And so from Santarém to Manaus, which were tiny, tiny settlements at the time. Today, Manaus is 2 million people. It's in the middle of the jungle. You can only get there by flying or by riverboat. You can't actually even drive there. It's so thick jungle. Around, along there, plantations just sprout up everywhere. But of course, there's no way that the white man is going to do the work. And so they enslave the native population. Um, Brazil is actually one of the final countries to uh, abolish slavery. And they do it in 1888. And up until that point, we have slave labor working to get the rubber throughout the 19th century and also indigenous populations. They actually did a survey uh, looking at uh, sort of the indigenous populations. There was one plantation, 50,000 people were working on it, um, apparently. Turned out only 8,000 of them were still alive. Because as I mentioned, they're doing this work at night. Now, there's no mosquitoes along the Rio Negro. It's, it's not that kind of river. But there are jaguars. And the jaguars will happily pounce on people and eat them while they're going around carving up the trees. And the workers aren't doing a little bit of work. They are doing you know, hundreds of trees a night, leaving these tire, tiny little cups planted in the tree, gathering the latex. This latex is then sort of bundled up and, uh, and heated, obviously. And you get these, these strange, it looks like an alien pod almost. It's about a foot long. And it is just basically rubber that's been tied up into a ball. And that's then shipped off. So the rubber boom essentially invigorates the entire economy along the, um, the Amazon River. Previously, there was no reason to go there. Suddenly, everyone's getting wealthy. And if anyone's seen the movie Fitzcarraldo, uh, which uh, was a Werner Herzog movie about uh, it ends up trying to push a boat up a mountain. Um, this was uh, him trying to build a rubber plantation where no one else had gone. It was how Brazil essentially funded Manaus. And today you've got these beautiful buildings in Manaus. There's a fantastic opera house, for example. It was one of the most wealthy cities in the world, purely on the back of rubber and slavery. Okay, so did other countries also try and grow rubber, apart from obviously in the Amazon? 
They did. Um, and obviously, if, if, if someone's making a lot of money, other countries want to get involved. And perhaps the best example of that and the worst example um, is what happens in, uh, in the Congo. Oh, so, it never ends well when it's the Belgians and uh, colonialism, does it? It doesn't. Um, so, colonialism. So, so rather, rather than Belgium itself, this is actually uh, the king of the Belgians specifically, Leopold II. Um, and he wants a private kingdom. And this is the thing, isn't it? He's not acting as the monarch of Belgium when he does all this. It's as an independent person. Absolutely. So what happens is in 1884, um, Otto von Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany, he gathers the 14 colonial powers together and they basically divvy up Africa. They go, you'll have that bit, I'll have this bit, you know, sod the natives, this is ours now. Uh, this is called the Berlin Conference and they discover they've left a big gap, um, which is the Congo. Um, and it is given over to Leopold, 2.3 million kilometres squared, as his private estate, essentially. And he says that he's going to run it for philanthropy purposes and, um, and look after the people there. He's talking shit. He's lying through his teeth. He has no intention of helping anybody at all. What he does is uh, he knows that there is a rubber-producing vine there. It's called uh, Landafila, uh, Landafila Oenarsis. And he decides to compete with the Brazilians and basically extract that through forced labor uh, in the Congo. So what happens is Leopold, essentially, he gets his colonial militia to set quotas that are almost impossible to meet. They call this the red rubber trade. And people have to work all day collecting the rubber. They don't really care whether or not they're, they're injured or, or hurt. So all night, I should probably say, because of trying to gather it for the vines. And rather than dry it in the sun, like the Brazilians did, he gets them to smear it onto their skin um, to dry it. And then they will rip it off the collection. He doesn't care if skin and hair comes off with it. Um, if people can't meet their quotas, Leopold basically has instructions that uh, the colonial militia will cut off their hand uh, to, to, as proof of death, as proof of execution that they, uh, they have killed the person who didn't meet the quota. So as a consequence, if a village knows that they're not going to hit their quota for that month, what they would do is they would attack a neighbouring village. They would find someone completely innocent, uh, uninvolved in the rubber trade, and they would hack off their hand. And so they could present this to the colonial militia and say, hey, look, we've got the person. Uh, they're, they're dead um, and we can move on. So we have mutilation. Um, we have enslavery, uh, essentially, um, this is sort of indentured servitude, people are forced to work there. And by the end of it, uh, through disease, through malnourishment, through overworking, through these atrocities, 10 million Congolese are murdered by the time that Leopold is stripped from power, which is in 1908. So if this is going on in Africa, um Obviously, there's not infinite amount of people around for you to hack about and torture until they give you all the rubber. Is that why we end up in Asia instead? Well, we end up in Asia because of the British being wankers, um, is the simple, simple answer. Standard. As usual, yeah. pretty, pretty standard for, for, for Britain in the 19th century. There's not quite Leopold levels, but up there. Yeah, we're, we're not as bad as Leopold, that has to be said. Um, so what happens is a guy called Henry Wickham. Uh, he's an explorer, Sir Henry Wickham. And it goes down the Amazon. And now, obviously, Brazil wants to keep the uh, the para rubber tree for themselves, but it can grow anywhere there's tropical uh, conditions. It's that kind of tree. 
And so Henry Wickham goes to Santarem, he visits the plantations, and he says, oh, can I have a few seeds just, just for scientific purposes? He has no scientific interest in the seeds whatsoever. What he does is he gathers up 70,000 trees from, uh, from the, the heavier plant, the, uh, this power rubber tree, and he smuggles them into Kew Gardens in London as academic specimens. And of course, Kew Gardens being fantastic at growing things, they take 70,000 of these seeds and 2,700 of them are able to be grown as trees. So what the British do is they take those trees and they transport them over to the British colonies in Sri Lanka, Malaysia, places like that, and they start growing their own version of rubber. And of course, the British very, very quickly pretty much wipe out the, uh, the Brazilian resistance. There's actually a, a blight that happens in, in Brazil as well, which is why they struggle. But the reason that rubber today is grown in Asia, it's not naturally there. It's because the British stole the seeds from Brazil and transported it to their colonies. Wow. I have yeah, no if, idea. If you think about it as well, because we're talking about a billion dollar industry here. So mm. this is probably the most expensive heist in history. The British actually stole an entire industry from Brazil. That's quite as sexy as Ocean's Eleven, though, is it? <laughs> well, gathering up little seeds along the banks yeah. of the Amazon. <laughs> um, is that the end for rubber in the Amazon? Is this where Henry Ford comes in? This is where Henry Ford comes in because it's not the end of, of, of rubber in the Amazon. Um, the Brazilians, they try to fight back. So in 1928, Henry Ford of the Ford Motor Company, uh, obviously he wants rubber for tires. Uh, it's fantastic for that. And so he decides to build a town in the Amazon to grow rubber specifically for the Ford Motor Company. And he calls the settlement Fordlandia because he's incredibly original. Um, it's on the, uh, the Topagos, the river Topagos, which is about 190 miles <clears throat> upstream from Santarém. The Tobacco's flows into uh, into the Amazon. And actually, where it meets at Santarem, it's kind of weird because you can see the Tobacco's is much, uh, more, much more clearer than the Amazon. Less stuff's in it. But underneath, the mud is black. And so you end up with this black river flowing into a brown river, and they don't merge. They actually flow along together for a little bit. And literally, one side of your boat is black, one side of your boat is brown, until the rivers actually sort of blend like coffee. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Anyway, about 190 mil miles upstream, he built Fordlandia and he decides this is going to be an American kind of place. Um, so Ford's managers, they know absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with rubber, but they insist they're going to control the agriculture. 
They build the trees on hilly land where machinery can't be used. They grow the crops too close together, which means that ants can attack them, jungle critters. They get problems with leaf blight, which wipe out their crop. But worst of all, they treat their workers as they would treat Americans. And this is 1928, so we're talking about prohibition. And so the Brazilians aren't allowed to drink. They aren't allowed to have women. They're not allowed to smoke. And they're not allowed to play football. And yeah, it's not going to go well. What else is there to live for in 1928? Well, I mean, I think even today, what, what else does someone someone from Brazil live for other than football? I mean, batting football in Brazil? That's, <laughs> goodness me. So the workers hate this. They actually create this place called the Isle of Innocence, where they actually sort of go off and uh, there's you know, prostitutes and things like that. They have a good time. Um, but in the camp, they they even have like their bunks inspected regularly by the Americans. They're, they're really sticklers for it. The problem as well is that they're not interested in any kind of sort of uh, nod to Brazilian culture. And so they force the workers to eat American food, which they can't stand. Um, They get fed up of hamburgers. And actually, they have a result, a revolt called the breaking pans over having to eat hamburgers in the Ford cafeteria. They can't stand it. They chase all of the Ford managers into the jungle to the point that the Brazilian army has to be called in to quell the worker rebellion. So this doesn't go well for Ford, uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, Fordlandia itself gets abandoned in about 1934. <laughs> he tries another settlement as well, um, uh, Belterra, uh, but he's struggling because at this time as well, people started to look into synthetic rubbers, sort of non-natural alternatives. Chemistry is coming along a little bit. And also there's these leaf blights, which, which they're really struggling with. But by the end of that little experiment, Ford lost the equivalent today of 300 million US dollars. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I kind of don't like him, so I'm like, nah. <laughs> Ford was a really weird dude. Was I he mean, a massive anti-Semite? Huge anti-Semite, yeah. He had, he had his papers, obviously, where he was, he was writing all kinds of stuff uh, and trying to control the media. Um, everything that Henry Ford did was just a little bit odd to put it mildly. Um, so yeah, I'm not a fan of him either. You've mentioned, uh, you just mentioned synthetic rubber. When does that yeah. really come into play? It really comes into play um, predominantly in the Second World War. Um, and everything starts to come together uh, around the Second World War. So in the 1920s, 1930s, people started doing experiments on synthetic rubber. The problem is synthetic rubber is never as good as the natural stuff. Yeah. So um, you're, you're a football fan. Um, name me a, a, a quite a small stadium. I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> Do you want to talk about Sutton United and the carpet that's all right, going to come up go, if go, they go to Leeds? Right, what, <laughs> what's, what's the capacity of somewhere like Sutton United? 3,000. Okay, so so when we, when we create a synthetic chain of rubber, we can probably do about 3,000, say. Um, so imagine everyone at Sutton United holding hands. Um, and that's, that's the length of your chain, 3,000. But 
about 500 people on Saturday night, they're a bit weird. They decide not to hold hands normally. What they do is they maybe cross hands. It's not left into right. They, they sort of cross it across their bodies or they hold their neighbor's head. They do something odd. Um, it is that's what, <laughs> It is fun. Um, so this is kind of what we get uh, for, for synthetic rubber. Um, it's because of something called cis-trans isomerism, um, which is basically the, there's mirror images of, of, of molecules. Same molecule, but like looking at yourself in the mirror, it's, it's, it's the wrong way around. And so 500 of these people holding hands, they're holding hands the wrong way. The chain isn't very good. That means there's inherent weakness in it. So that's what we can produce naturally. Sorry, uh, that's what we can produce uh, as, 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 from, as from humans. In nature, the chains are the new camp, 120,000 people. And out of those 120,000, maybe 50 are holding hands the wrong way. So they're much longer chains and they're all this, uh, this cis arrangement for the polyisoprene. So they're much, much better. So even though we can start making synthetic rubber, it's just not as good as the natural stuff. Um, we do start supplementing some of the synthetic, uh, some of the natural rubber production into things like tires. You'll find synthetic rubbers all over the place, but we still need that natural supply. And during the Second World War, obviously what happens is the Japanese invade uh, southern Southeast Asia. And so all of those areas that I mentioned earlier, you know, places like Malaysia and Indonesia, they're underneath under Japanese occupation or there's big problems with supply. And that means everyone starts struggling uh, to produce rubber. And that means they've got to look at alternatives. Let's talk about World War Two. Uh, Japanese internment, um, Auschwitz, Alina's had to go off and get vaccinated. So she's going to miss this. And a Brazilian forced conscription army where you put in your notes, virtually everyone fucking died. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's 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 the sort of that's the spark notes version of it. But yeah, everyone basically died. So. Every nation is trying to get rubber because obviously they need to produce vehicles, they need to produce tires. Everyone's desperate to get it. And in World War II, there is a huge demand for it. The problem is the Japanese have taken all of the area, all of the stuff. So let's break it down into this is sort of the Axis and the Allies. Um, in the Axis, the Germans really look at synthetic rubber. And one of the main places they do it is Auschwitz. So they gather up scientists, um, many of them Jews, perhaps one of the most famous is Primo Levi, who wrote a book called The Periodic Table, sorry, A Periodic Table, um, which was about, in part, his time at Auschwitz. And this was the, um, I'm going to, it's really good, Alina's not here because I'm going to get pronunciation wrong. Um, yeah, Monovica, she, she can't hear you, it's fine. The Monovitsa con uh, con uh, concentration camp. They mm -hmm. start experimenting on synthetic rubbers. But they also get uh, 320 female prisoners, um, many of whom were chemists, biologists, at, uh, at Reichko, uh, which is a subcamp, and they get them to look at dandelions. So, as I mentioned, you can get rubber latex from a whole host of different plants, and the Russian dandelion, uh, the Taraxacum uh, dandelion, actually has lots of rubber in its, its roots. And so the Germans start uh, experimenting there to see if they can actually mass produce rubber using dandelions. Turns out the answer is you can. Um, and today we're actually looking at that even more. It's likely that for various reasons, we're going to start moving to making tires out of dandelions. But these 320 female prisoners, um, they're actually treated much better than many people at Auschwitz, uh, it has to be said. Um, there are still horrific cases of torture and abuse. But in general, you know, at least they were allowed to wear clothes, for example. 
Um, unfortunately, uh, in January 1945, the project is rounded up um, and the women are forced onto a death march. Um, so many of them died. It's, but that's the German attempt. Um, it's kind of horrific that we're sort of dragging into this, but it shows how desperate people were to produce rubber. The Russians, as I mentioned, they're looking also at this, this dandelion. It comes from Kazakhstan. Um, and so they're quite invested in that and they start producing various tires out of dandelions. But the real dickheads in this are the Americans um, because the Americans do two things. The first is that they start looking at uh, another little vine. It's, it's actually a shrub called Wahuli, uh, which is always fun to say. Um, and that's in the Chihuahua Desert of Mexico. And they realize that they can grow it in any kind of desert environment. Yeah. And so, the, but they need someone to, to harvest this crop. And so they think, wait a minute, we've got all of these Japanese Americans that we've interned um, essentially in a prison camp at Manzanar. Why don't we force them to tend our crops? And so 35,000 acres of this Wahuli shrub are grown by Japanese Americans who are imprisoned purely because of their Japanese heritage during the Second World War. This is... Like Canadians did the same, didn't they? It's big as blue. It's, it's awful. Um, and this is really only the start for the US because obviously this is relatively small scale. 35,000 acres of this shrub isn't going to solve the, the, the crisis they have for rubber. And so what they do is they contact Brazil. Now, Brazil is an allied nation. They actually are part of the allies in the Second World War. They even fight um, in Italy, I believe. Um, and the Brazilians decide that they need a second rubber boom. But of course, slavery is over. They can't get the indigenous populations to work again because they've massacred them all. So they literally go around and they scoop up young men off the streets and say, congratulations, you are now a rubber soldier. Uh, they draft an army of 55,000 young men from cities and they ship them into the Amazon, march them off there and force them to essentially try and grow rubber. And this is the, the rubber soldiers. Uh, throughout the Second World War, they produced huge amounts of rubber for the Americans. The problem is, again, Jaguar attacks, disease, just being in the jungle, nasty conditions. Half of them uh, die in the jungle. Um, and these young men, many of them aren't even recognized, uh, particularly until sort of much later in the, in, in the war. In the war. Um, they didn't even get paid for it, which is just one of the awful things. It was the, uh, yeah, the Special Service of Mobilization of Workers for the Amazon, the program was called. And, uh, and yeah, they were just basically forgotten. So a secret army that no one really knows about forced into the jungle just to get rubber. That's shocking. It is. And, and remember, up there this with is... that crazy president now. Oh, yeah. Well, let's not talk about him. Yeah. <laughs> this is a history show. Let's keep it that way uh, before I express an opinion that I might regret. Um, but uh, this is the thing. So rubber is so important to both sides that the Axis and the Allies are killing thousands of people trying to make rubber. Just the amount of people that have died in the name of rubber. Since exactly. And, and it's one of those things that we, we all use. We probably never even think about this. Yeah. Um, and we have already, we were at the end of the Second World War. We've got what multiple counts of forced internment, forced, forced labor, slavery. We've got two genocides um, already. We've got Henry Ford and all, all of that. 
this is the kind of stuff that's, that sort of builds the modern world. And people often don't think about where materials come from. We really should do, because it's uh, the, the history of, of sort of trying to get these materials is often so linked to, to tragedy. You're, uh, you ain't done yet either, are you? You've got uh, an economic <laughs> disaster to come. Yeah, so this is the big problem. Um, so we spoke earlier about where, we, where, where, the, where rubber today comes from, which is Asia. Um, Thailand is one of the big producers, Malaysia as well. The problem is that when you've got a crop like rubber, which needs a lot of space, you're clearing out massive amounts of jungle. So obviously it's carving up and creating sort of climate change disasters, things like that. These are all small shareholders, crop sharers, um, tiny, tiny plantations. They're, they're not sort of like a government program in general. And so there's a lot of very poor people who aren't able to afford things like pesticides, et cetera. And so we get rubber blights. Now, usually a rubber blight is kind of like a leaf blight. It will cause disease to certain amounts of trees. Um, and even though you're not using pesticides, it will probably ravage one farm and then sort of leave the others alone. The problem is dates back to the British, like so many other problems. As I mentioned, all these seeds come from Wickham. The trees are clones. They are identical to each other. There's only 2,700 different variety of tree. And that means the blight, once it can kill one tree, it can kill every single neighbor. So in fact, just last, uh, so two years back, 2019, we lost about 10% of the world's rubber supply through leaf blights. They get absolutely wiped out. And this is, again, purely down to the history of where these came from. This obviously causes huge problems when you have things like a pandemic where you need rubber gloves, um, things like that. The world's supply of rubber gloves is exhausted. Um, it's, a, it's a, one of the latex variants. Uh, I think until the end of 2022, we just run out of the shit. Um, so we're in real trouble. And this is the seeds of this is laid in history. Fortunately, though, the solution is also laid in history. So one of the things we're looking at now is this Wahuli shrub in America in particular. They're looking at growing huge amounts of it um, in, the, in Arizona and New Mexico, places where it can grow. And in Europe, we're looking at dandelions. As I mentioned, uh, Continental have this huge program going on at the moment, trying to make tires out of dandelions. Um, and you're going to see this everywhere we go. Um, so you might see it along the sides of roads and things like that, because the one thing about dandelions is pretty resistant. You know, they're pretty resistant to all kinds of stuff. So we need to think about history always in context, particularly when it comes to the history of science. Mm. And as it happens, the history of science when it comes to rubber um, means that our future, uh, our future production of rubber, our future uses for rubber is absolutely linked into this tragic, awful history that I've just been talking about. And uh, tell everybody, Kit, why is it that you know all this about rubber? Because it's got something to do with your new book, hasn't it? It does. Um, so I've been looking at uh, the history of uh, Formula One and motorsport, and particularly the science that's kind of spun out of that. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff that I never realized before. Um, so I knew things like sort of rear view mirrors had come from motorsport because you needed to see who was behind you and, and safety helmets, crash helmets. But I didn't realize sort of things like uh, the aerodynamics of a, a fridge freezer unit in Tesco's or uh, any other supermarket, that's based on the aerodynamics of a Formula One car's wings. They actually use the, uh, the aerodynamics to keep the cool air in. Um, and so I started looking at rubber and, uh, and alternatives and suddenly found out, obviously, 
you can't go racing without tires. Um, yeah. And sort of cracked open this this story about rubber and just suddenly found myself in the middle of these horrific stories of, of genocide and, and and struggle and people like Charles Goodyear. And, uh, and so, yeah, fascinating area of history. Thank you so much for coming on to share it with us. We will absolutely get you back to do your book properly when it comes out um, so that it will result in lots of lovely sales for you rather than doing it now um, and everyone forgetting about it. But thank you so much for sharing just this little bit of it with us today. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.